Across Asia, in the 6th century BCE, something extraordinary happened. At precisely the same time, three thought systems emerged that made man the measure of all things, not the gods of the existing religions. The first Greek philosophers, Buddha and Confucius, all lived in the very same century, and I have always wondered about that coincidence. The ways they saw the world, their ethical teachings, have so much in common. Well, maybe via trade routes and imperial politics, they were in touch. Ideas exchanged. But here's another coincidence. A funny thing happened after the first Greek philosophers, Buddha and Confucius, died. Their faiths without God became religions anyway. How? Why? There's a singing ball. There's a singing ball. When he was alive, the Buddha taught, no one saves us but ourselves, work out your own salvation. But today in Bodhgaya, the place where Buddha became enlightened, the pilgrims who come here are praying to him for help in figuring it out. Those who live here seem to be exclusively devoted to selling goods and services to the pilgrims. Are you Buddhist? No. You're Hindu? Yeah, Hindu. Is business good or bad? Good not, business yet good. Business is good. Yeah, good. Oh, that's good. Thank you. God is good for business all over Bodhgaya, and Asia's dramatic recent economic growth means a steady supply of pilgrims to this isolated place in India's poorest state, Bihar. Riding down the streets on a motorbike, you catch glimpses of new hotels going up all over town for visitors from Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Japan, Sri Lanka, and elsewhere. Each nation has its own pavilion and dormitory for its own monks and visitors. The sound of Tibetan Buddhist music made by young monks from Nepal practicing on their horns pours into the streets. All the town's visitors and noises converge at the Mahabodhi temple complex. What seems like a million screech birds hide in the trees that shade the walkways to the temple entrance. Buddhism, founded in the idea of quiet meditation, lives and breathes in endless din. The Mahabodhi temple sits in a vast sunken garden. The site was re-excavated by Sir Alexander Cunningham, who founded the Archaeological Survey of India back in the 19th century. An infusion of money in recent decades has led to further renovations. At dusk, when hundreds of colored lights strewn around the 12-acre complex come on, it is a fantasy land for faith. I found a guide, took off my shoes, and went in. You are most welcome here in the Mahabodhi Mahavihara. My name is uh, Rabbi Ranjan Kumar Misra. Sir, this is the place where about 2,600 years before, Prince Siddhartha, he got enlightenment here under the Bodhi tree and he became Lord Buddha here. Barefoot, we walked down a flight of steps into the temple compound and came to the main gate. This is the Ashoka main gate in the 3rd century BC, this gate made by Ashoka. Ashoka, the great emperor of the Mauryan Empire, is the person who made the passage of Buddhism from a teaching into a world religion possible. 200 years after the great sage's death, Ashoka made Buddhism the official religion of an empire stretching from the Bay of Bengal across India and up through Afghanistan and Iran into Central Asia.
Ashoka built temples and endowed study centers, and in Bodhgaya built an elaborate temple and garden around the fig tree where Siddhartha was meditating when he became enlightened. The original Ashoka temple is long gone. Today, pilgrims cram into the base of a tower 180 feet high, built around 450 AD. They chant their devotion before a golden statue with the familiar round face. Outside, along the western wall of the temple, is the sacred tree. Sir, now I am going to show you the Bodhi tree, under which tree Prince Siddhartha got enlightenment there and he became Lord Buddha there. My guide and I walked around the side, past pilgrims from Thailand, Burma, Japan, and other places, and came to a little golden canopied platform. And now we are standing under the Bodhi tree, sir. And this is the Bodhi tree. Under this tree, about 2,600 years before, the Prince Siddhartha got enlightenment here, and he became Lord Buddha here. All religions need founding legends. Here's the Bodhi tree legend. This is the fourth Bodhi tree on this site, my guide explained, but it is a direct descendant of the original. Now, if it seems unlikely that this tree is linked to the one the Buddha sat under, it doesn't stop pilgrims from making the most intense devotions here. As my guide was explaining the various legends, a Thai woman was on her knees praying. Just by the tree was a concrete cast of footprints. In the early days of the religion, there were no representations of the Buddha, just sculptures of footprints. It had rained heavily the previous evening, and she kept dipping her hand in and out of the water that was still puddled inside the concrete cast and touching it to her lips and forehead. We wandered around the complex. In the temple, monks from the Tibetan or Mahayana tradition were doing their evening chant. Monks from Sri Lanka or the Theravadan tradition had been in earlier. What religion doesn't have a schism as part of its early history? The religious fervor was overwhelming, and when my tour was over, I needed a rest. I sat on a bench looking back into the temple complex. Two boys, barely teenagers, in the saffron robes of monks, stopped by to say hello and ask what I was doing. I'm a journalist, I told them. Me too, said one of them. But you say you're a press reporter. I know, I know press reporter. I'm he's, joking. You're joking. You to he's joking. Does he joke all yes. the time? He's joking. You're wearing robes. Are you really monks? Yes, we are a monk. How did you become a monk? You're so young. Seven years ago already. Seven years ago? Yes. Why is this? Huh? I'm like Buddha. Some, you love somebody Buddha? Yes. I am every day praying in temple, morning time, evening time. Morning, morning time, five o'clock, I start pray. Yeah? Evening time, five o'clock, I start my pray. Really? Really. Last time, morning time, coming main temple, yeah. praying, I start. Okay? But so you Really? And you became a monk when? When you were five when? years old? Uh, six. Six, six years. How does, how does that happen? I don't understand. 
Did your parents say you will be a monk or did you feel Buddha inside you or what? Yes, yes, inside. You felt the Lord Buddha inside you? Yes. Do you think that Buddha is God? What? Is Lord Buddha Lord. God? God. God. No. He's not God. He is a human. He is a human. human. Beings. But you worship him? Yes. Why? Buddha tell that you don't worship me. If you want, you worship to the Bodhi tree. It means that you are worship me. Lord Buddha may have said, don't worship me, but that is exactly what seems to be going on. His image is always present in the temples where adherents go to chant and pray. If he is not God, he seems to be a connection to a deity. On the outskirts of Bodhgaya, in the middle of fields, is the Root Institute, set up by Western adherents of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. On a quiet, humid day, I sat in the Institute's garden with Andy Melnick, who runs Root's local orphanage, and a nun named Sarah. I asked them about the ecstatic kind of worship I saw at the Mahabodhi temple. I mean, one thing we have in the West is because we are not naturally Buddhist, we tend to be extremely skeptical. So it takes a lot of study and reasoning and logic and experience to convince us. You know, we're not going to just... Most of us have had a religion, we've thrown it away, we're not just going to pick up any old thing. We need to be convinced. So that requires study, that requires reflection, that requires some kind of conviction that um, maybe many of the people we see at the stupa don't have. But what I find personally is what many people do have who come from Buddhist cultures is an almost cellular devotion and faith which we don't have when we approach things in a rational way. Maybe that will come with generations. We might have a very reasoned faith, but this just um, cellular kind of devotion that I experienced in Mongolia, Andy, it was extraordinary. They had no clue what it meant to be Buddhist, many of them, you know. I mean, I would give this teaching again and again. What is a Buddhist? They didn't know. They just, I'm a Buddhist. What is it? I don't know. Who's Buddha? I don't know. But the devotion that they had was far greater than mine. It was just a natural, spontaneous reverence and devotion. So is that If you can put those two together, you know, you'll get the, the perfect practitioner, I think. So are you talking about blind faith? This is blind faith. Their culture. I don't know whether this is faith. I think this is this is what we call blind faith. It's sort of. It is faith. There's different kinds of faith. It's, there's different kinds of faith. It is faith. It's one of the kinds of faith. And I think if you can put together this kind of uh, cellular feeling and devotion with rational understanding, you get the best one. That's what I see in a lot of Chinese practitioners, you know, who've been educated in the West. They have a very modern education, but at the same time they have a natural faith, whereas we have a natural skepticism. Two images of the sage look down on this discussion. A larger-than-life golden statue of him in lotus position was just behind us. To the side, in a glass case, was a wood-carved portrait. This was not the round-faced, suffused with peace and understanding Buddha we know. This was a wooden carving of the head of Prince Siddhartha Gautama when he practiced intense self-mortification before he became enlightened. The Buddha here is no more than a bearded skull. It looks like the suffering Christ as imagined by Spanish sculptors of the late Middle Ages. Back then, in Spain, 
pilgrims journeyed from place to place to worship relics of Christ and his saints. Today, Andy Melnick explained, the Root Institute sends relics of the Buddha around the world. For the last few years, you've been traveling with relics. Yes, with a, a large collection of Buddhist relics, um, which actually is owned by our Lama here. What, what, for example? For instance, the Buddha. We have re relics of the Buddha. No, but what relics do you have? Well, okay, so because in the Buddhist tradition, death, they're mainly burnt, they're not buried. So most of the relics we had have are found in the ashes after cremation. One time in Sardinia, I remember we were on a beach because that's we were on a tower on a beach, and so our only our only audience were tourists, and they didn't know anything about it. And there was people who would wander into the tower to look at it. And there's this Buddhist exhibition, and I remember some people saying to me, "What is this?" And I'd tell them. They they say, "What do we do?" I said, "Just go around and look at them." And and they I thought, "Oh, they're not very interested." And I, I watched them. They walked. They went round. And they came out there completely in tears because they absolutely picked up on this energy. So, yeah. Must have surprised you. I mean, they're Catholic, obviously. Um, many of them are Catholic. Well, of course, Catholics understand relics. but um, So they go in and they make the sign of the cross and then they put their hands together and, with the Buddhist sign and, and they feel the energy. In Mexico City, we had 36,000 people, all Catholics, coming to the relics. Buddha started out teaching five disciples what he had learned under the Bodhi tree, a small beginning for what has become a world religion. One of the main reasons Buddhism survived and flourished when other faiths that grew up at the same time didn't lay in its ability to coexist with other belief systems. At the Roots Clinic, recordings of Tibetan monks are played in the open-air waiting room. A young nurse, educated at a school the Institute runs, explained that like virtually everyone in this holy Buddhist town, she was a Hindu. No matter. Do you chant? Yeah. Do you meditate? Yeah. Does it help? Yeah. I feel very calm when I meditate. So I do meditation every morning. But you're also Hindu. Yeah, I'm Hindu. In Hindu, there is also meditation. It's like some when the when a sadhu pray, it's called the yoga or the um, like shanti. And in this, in Buddhist, we say meditation. So both are the same. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for talking. Through Ashoka's political patronage, Buddhism spread around Asia rapidly. The reason I think it transcended so many boundaries, cultural and geographical and political boundaries, is because it offers this incredibly elegant solution to the most fundamental uh, problem of, of human life, which is suffering. Author Mishi Saran. And how could this not appeal to anybody and everybody? I mean, that's, of course, its most reductionist uh, explanation. And it, it, it sort of jumped from there and expanded and um, evolved. But essentially, that's what it is. Mishi Saran says Buddhism's embrace by ordinary people made the religion attractive to rulers. Monarchs and emperors, if, even if they didn't believe in Buddhism, they saw how popular Buddhism was, and it often became a political tool of perhaps unification, or uh, even King Ashok in India 
um, the Mauryan king Ashok, he would ha he used Buddhism as a great uh, unifying tool. Of course, it all stemmed from his massive, amazing conversion. Saran understands the link between rulers and the Buddhist faith, and its Indian origins and Chinese flourishing. Born in India, the author has been living in China for almost two decades, currently in Shanghai. Her book, Chasing the Monk's Shadow, tells the story of Xuanzang, a Chinese Buddhist monk of the 7th century AD. Unaccompanied, Xuanzang journeyed from Xi'an via the Silk Road to Nalanda, near Bodhgaya, site of a Buddhist university. There, he translated original texts of the Buddhist canon into Chinese and brought them back to Xi'an 18 years after he left. To research her book, Saran traveled the same route, although not for the same amount of time. Buddhism arrived in China around 200 BCE. The teachings of Confucius, Buddha's direct contemporary, were already established, but even in China, Buddhism took root quickly. Confucian thought and uh, the Confucian code is not very kind to women. And, you know, Conf under Confucianism, women have to obey the, the, the three obeys and the four virtues. And basically, it's obey your father, your husband, your son. And the four virtues are, you know, propriety of speech and charm and uh, physical beauty. And, and curiously, uh, you must be proficient in embroidery also, according to Confucius. Well, where do women like that go when they're in trouble? And I say this in my book, you know, when they're in trouble, when the rice is burned and their kids turn out badly and their husband's beating them. Where do you go for a bit of comfort to your soul? Well, Buddhism offered that. And uh, often even with, within the imperial construct, it was the emperor's wives who supported Buddhism. Over the last 2,300 years, the two faiths have vied for official approval by China's rulers. The rivalry has occasionally been bloody, but not so much in recent centuries. It's one of the official religions of China. Uh, that means that Buddhist temples are allowed to function um, freely. And uh, hundreds of uh, many young people I meet in Shanghai, in capitalistic, materialistic Shanghai, tell me they're Buddhist because I think it's as for the past 2,000 years, Buddhist has offered, Buddhism has offered a, an alternative to the pressures of life in China. Interestingly, Confucianism is not one of the official religions of China, and many Chinese scholars would say that is a correct judgment, as Confucianism is really not a religion. Although you wouldn't think that if you visited Chufu, the master teacher's hometown. Chufu is a lot like Bodhgaya, although much more modern. Outside the walls of the Confucius house and adjacent temple complex, hawkers sell the usual religious stuff, while music of Confucius's time plays out of tinny speakers. The tumult doesn't reach the same level as in Bodhgaya, nor are there as many pilgrims. Actually, I'm not sure pilgrim is the right word to describe the steady stream of school and coach parties making their way through the grounds.
Confucius's house sits in a compound of buildings with a rock garden at the back. It is very much a place of tourism. But the temple complex is different. Here you get the sense of Confucianism as a religion. I was accompanied through the grounds by a colleague, Professor Ho Ping Ping, Professor of English and Translation Studies at Shandong University. So this is the Temple of Confucius. The whole thing, the, the whole, whole compound is called the Temple of Confucius. And, and it was like a temple. I mean, people came and they, they prayed as they, because you, you, you're using the word as you would use it in English, that they pray, they, they ask Confucius. Yeah, in, in the sense that pray, because they would uh, do things, worship Confucius and hope fully that uh, he can, you know, bring Right. Good luck or... Okay. Ah, but now we get to the critical question. How is this worship? Uh, what kind of worship? I mean, do they, do they say a prayer? It's like, you know, in Christianity, you, you say a prayer to a saint and ask for relief for a particular problem, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but is that what they're doing? No. I, I don't think so. I don't think they would say a prayer like that, but it's... Uh, in the same sense, you know, they would uh, ask for something, yeah. but not not really a prayer in in and, in that sense. And would they light a candle or some joystick or something? Um, sometimes. And indeed, in the plaza in front of this temple, the Hall of Great Achievements, there was a little padded bench to kneel at in front of a small shrine. People bought candles from a kiosk to the side of the plaza, lit them placed them in the shrine, knelt down, and then looked completely lost. Most of them had no idea how to pray. A young man working the kiosk had to come over and show them what to do. I watched several people kneel and then look confused. Then I wandered over to the kiosk with Professor Ho to find out what was going on. What is he? The people come, they buy some candles, but they don't know how to pray. He has to tell them what to do. The man in charge of the kiosk offered this explanation. Actually, uh, this person was guiding them mm -hmm. to show them the right way to do that. This is also about the rights, the proper way mm -hmm. to do this. Rights, rituals, in Confucian teaching are complete and self-sufficient. You don't do them in the hopes of gain in this life or the next. You perform them for their own sake. I asked the boss if people had forgotten how to perform rituals because of the decades of communist rule, when Confucian religious practice had been banned. Mm he -hmm. said that more and more people um, now know about the rights, more people than before. And he also talked about the Confucius Institutes abroad to promote the Confucian culture. Then my companion, Professor Ho, got engaged into a long conversation with the kiosk owner about the hand gestures that people had to learn. Uh, I asked him the difference, of, you know, of uh, doing this. Yes. This is uh, Buddhism, mm -hmm. this is Buddhism, and this is Taoism. But this, Yes. For when you're worshipping Confucius, 
Yeah. Okay. So, so with Buddhism, you, you put your hands together, in, yeah. together yeah. And, and it's the same prayer gesture as in the West. With Taoism, um, it, it's the familiar gesture from Kung Fu films, <laughs> fist inside uh -huh. hand. But with Confucius, your hands are, sp are spread open mm -hmm. and you put your right hand into your left palm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, that, and that's the correct way to pray to Confucius. Mm. Thank you. Just beyond the stall were half a dozen bulletin boards covered in red cards with messages written on the back. They're having best wishes for the people they love. For example, this one, you can see the name. Mm -hmm. and he said, uh, I wish my daughter good health and uh, a happy life. And, uh, there were thousands of these cards pinned to the bulletin boards, and they all were on these linked themes, wishes for parents to have good health and for children to do well at school. And this one is very simple. It said, I wish I could be admitted into college. <laughs> Very specific. Let's find out how much they are. 31. So for roughly three pounds you can buy a board and have, have good wishes. Mm -hmm. uh. Just before you reach the Hall of Great Achievements, you walk around a small open-air pavilion. It's raised half a flight of stairs above ground level. This was Confucius School. The master teacher Kong that's what his name means. Kong was his family name. Zi means teacher. Fu is an honorific. So Kong Fu Zi was Latinized into Confucius. In Confucius' time, the pavilion was shaded by an apricot tree. And as his pupils studied and practiced the rites, the master would play music. As at the Mahabodhi Temple, I was told the apricot trees that are growing around the pavilion today are from cuttings of the original. The genealogy of the tree made me skeptical, but I couldn't express the same feeling to the man I met here, Kong Xianling, a 75th generation direct descendant of Confucius. 75th. 75th. Mm. Right. Mm. That's a long time. Yeah, that is a long time. Mm. Mm. Oh, actually, he was interviewed in 2006 by oh, BBC. Oh, yes, by who? Mm. We exchanged cards, and he told me a bit about the temple complex. It had become very run down during the early years of communism and then the Cultural Revolution. After the liberalization began in 1979, he was put in charge of the restoration. So much of Confucianism is based on respect for ancestors. I wondered if Mr. Kong felt that Mao had disrespected his great elder. Professor Ho translated his answer for me. There was a period when the government uh, mm. disrespected the Kong family mm. and the Confucianism. Mm. Um, that happened during the Cultural Revolution between 1966 mm. to 1978. Mm. Or we can call mm. that the second period in the Chinese history mm. when the government showed the disrespect. But the first one was during the reign of uh, the Qin Shi Huang, the first mm. emperor mm. of mm. Qin. Yes, that, that, that's quite extraordinary to have a family that you can say there were two times when my family was disrespected, first by Mao and then by Qin Shi Huang. This is, no, no other family can say that. Qin Shi Huang was the first emperor of China, about 200 BCE. It's a very long family history. Following Qin Shi Huang's death, Confucianism was restored to favor. 
Interestingly, this coincided with the arrival of Buddhism into China. The similarities in the history of Confucianism and Buddhism are many. A key one, like Buddha's ideas, Confucius's teachings spread into Korea, Japan, throughout East Asia, its intellectual structure flexible enough to absorb local traditions. The Confucius family genealogy is a long one, and equally lengthy is the family history of Confucius' favorite pupil, Yan Hui. Today, his direct descendant, Yan Pingha, teaches Confucianism at Shandong University, a two-hour drive from Chufu. Accompanied by Professor Ho, I visited him and asked where he stood on the question of Confucianism as a religion. Professor Yan said it depends on where in Asia you live. I believe there are two reasons. First, on the mainland of China, we are under the influence of the importance of science, science, natural science. And uh, very often, when people talk about religion, it's like a spiritual opium. And for some people, religion is not a good thing. For this reason, uh, people would prefer to call Confucianism the study, Confucian studies, rather than uh, a religion. And uh, the second uh, reason is that for the overseas people, the people in South Asia, uh, overseas Chinese in uh, Southeast Asia, they are in a different situation. They, they do not want to choose Christianity or the Islamism as their religion. So they kind of rely on Confucianism as a religion. That's why in these parts, these areas, you know, these parts of the world okay. is more a religion than on the mainland of China. But to this outsider, catching a glimpse from a high-speed train of a farmer sitting alone in the middle of a muddy field, praying before an ancestor's shrine, or watching people from the city learning how to worship before a massive statue of the great teacher, Confucianism in contemporary China looks like a religion as well. But Confucius, revered and sacred, is something more in today's China. He's a unifying symbol a vehicle for nationalist pride and the framework around which religious subjects in what is still a communist country where religion is no more than tolerated can be discussed. Students at Peking University gather at the Center for Advanced Humanistic Studies, where Professor Du Weiming is chairing a session of the Beijing Forum on finding the sacred in our contemporary world. How to go beyond the secular age is a process of sacralization. In other words, to regard the secular as sacred. The discussion was fascinating. The student questions more so. They had little to do with the theme of making the secular sacred. Most were nationalist in tone, expressing dismay at how China is misunderstood in the world and how it would be much better if people knew Confucian thought. And. In fact, the Chinese government, as a projection of soft power, has been funding Confucius Institutes at universities around the world. After the session, I spoke about the role of Confucius in modern China with Yuan Rei, presenter of The Dialogue Program, an English-language current affairs discussion show on Chinese state television.
In fact, I'm skeptical about how many of my Chinese nationals have a clear idea about what the symbol of Confucianism actually stands for, particularly in terms of how to advance the construction of China's soft power image. When the implications of China's rapid development are severely criticized for causing climate change as well as corruption, so on and so forth. Now, my understanding about the strength of Confucianism is very much about having a harmonious society. The Chinese would rather have a more balanced picture about the world. You know, the first place I visited, my first trip to China, was Shanghai. Mm. And I looked at the astonishing skyline of Pudong, and I thought, I don't see Confucius in any of this enormity. If balance is, is which is my understanding, Westerners' understanding from reading Analects in translation, I just don't understand it. Yet I hear in London that the government is trying to use as a soft power tool Confucianism, yet at the same time there's this gigantism, this dynamism that seems to be competitive. When you look at the rise of a city, very much like the rapid development of China, you shouldn't get carried away by the misleading skylines. The essence of Confucianism, at least a major part of the essence concerning Confucianism, is to encourage people to work very hard. And the high-rise buildings in Shanghai and Pudong in particular stand for the outcome of uh, commitments. Once again, Confucianism, a thought system born in political upheaval, is linked inextricably to the political life of China. But that isn't a problem, according to Professor Du. The critical spirit of Confucianism is uh, the reason that this tradition will be able to survive and flourish. That is, not only it is uh, a system to criticize the political situation, you know, not enough human rights, uh, not enough freedom, there's no legal constraint, a lot of corruption and so forth, that critical politically. But it has to be a form of social criticism. We don't have a civil society. In fact, the government is too strong and all these social forces are being undermined by a kind of uh, sometimes unthinking political process. But this reminds me of a rather interesting personal anecdote. Uh, a few years ago, a high official who's also politically influential, but uh, intellectually sophisticated. He said, Professor Du, tell you the truth, I really don't like Confucianism. You know, I never consider that as my cup of tea. And yet I know it contributes to patriotism. Chinese feel proud. So I think I urge you to preach Confucianism. Preaching Confucianism. Interesting turn of phrase. Preaching rather than teaching. Even Communist Party officials seem to think there is something sacred rather than secular in Confucius' work. But the phrase also demonstrates a phenomenon that reaches across cultures. No matter how secular the thought system, the language we use to convince others to agree with us is borrowed from religion. Preach. I believe. Take a leap of faith. This isn't just metaphor. Almost all knowledge is imperfect. Even atheists have to take things on faith sometimes.
The main motivation for the first Greek philosophers, who lived at the same time as Buddha and Confucius, was a desire to rationally explain the natural world and to leave the rest of experience to the priests. James Warren, reader in philosophy at Cambridge University. You could overstate the notion of science here because it's not as if they're really very much engaged in empirical experimentation of any kind. But what they are doing is reasoning out explanations from the basis of things they're familiar with and using sometimes analogical reasoning to say, well, given that we're familiar with the way in which plants grow out of moist circumstances, for example, that if you don't water a plant, it's not going to grow, maybe we should think of the origin of life as a whole as depending on some kind of moist environment. Do you think of rationalism as having arrived at a point in intellectual history where it's becoming a faith? I'm not sure I'd say it's a faith. I, as far as I'm personally concerned, I think it's at least where you should start. And there might be limits to what our reason can achieve or where we might get with rational and critical evaluation. But I think it's always the place to start. It might not lead to the results that you expect it to lead. It might lead to negative results, in fact. And you... For my part, I most often find myself finding I've not got such good reasons for thinking things as I thought I had. And then maybe there's room for something that you might call faith or something that you might call less grounded belief. The first philosopher, Thales, certainly wasn't trying to supplant faith with rationalism. Thales lived in the Ionian Greek city of Miletus in what is today Turkey. Nothing survives of his city the Persians destroyed it. Today, Miletus is not a place of pilgrimage. It is a place where archaeologists work silently in the sun. Archaeologist Folkmar von Greve has been digging at Miletus for half a century. This is what he has learned about Thales and religion in Miletus. This was the surroundings of Thales. His brain was against the gods, but his environment was very religious. I think he did not want to impose his ideas on the people. And I think they would have killed him if he had. <laughs> Indeed, 150 years later in Athens, Socrates was put to death for, among other things, impiety. Since its beginnings in Miletus, rationalism has continued to shape religion. Logos, the word, is a fundamental building block of Christianity, the idea of an infinite logos came from another early Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, who wrote shortly after Thales died. The perceived opposition between rationalism and religious faith has defined Western thinking, says Peking University's Professor Du. The most uh, powerful ideology in human history is the Enlightenment mentality of the modern West, who emerged in the 18th century and so forth. Precisely because uh, great thinkers like Voltaire, Diderot, Adam Smith, um, David Hume, you know, Immanuel Kant, they're all great humanists. And so there's a very strong attempt to fight against uh, religion Today in the West, there is a fresh tension between religion and rationalism. But I wonder if they are really so separate. 
in parts of Britain today, you can go to a Sunday Assembly meeting, described at the Sunday Assembly website as godless congregations which gather to celebrate life. Which brings me back to my original question. Why did the thought systems created in the 6th century BCE become religions? And it brings me back to a discussion I had with an Oxford-educated Buddhist monk in India. Kabir Saxena was his name, and he took me to the remains of Nalanda, the university visited by Xuanzang on his long journey 1,500 years ago. Outside the gates of the massive complex is the din of modern India, child beggars, hawkers of religious tat. Inside, all is quiet at this impressive archaeological site. I sat in what was once a teacher's cell with Kabir Saxena for a history lesson and theological discussion. How did the Buddha's teachings end up becoming a religion, I asked. Well, how does any religion happen? Uh, people get inspired by it. Initially, the tradition wasn't even written down. The teachings weren't written down. It was uh, all memorized by certain monks who had certain powers, let's say, to, to remember. And they recited these verses together on occasion at Buddhist councils. But there's a human tendency, isn't there, to aggregate things, to form uh, structures, to keep things living. Why do people need religion then? Well, just the spur of the moment answer comes to me that just as a person needs water, and if you don't get water, you shrivel up and you die. I think it's the same with uh, genuine faith and genuine religion. I have to add the word genuine. It's what's happening today. People are drying up, they're shriveled, they're angry, they're upset, they're frustrated. People don't know how to lead, I think, a meaningful life. We are seduced by our technologies and by all sorts of idiots. And uh, we are lost, basically. We're lost. We're in a kind of a wasteland. And without a proper understanding of religion, which is relegare, right, to link up again with the truth, not some necessarily organized religion, but to link up with that which is true, based on the roots of the word. Same as the word yoga. Religion means the same as yoga, yog, yug, to, to, you know, to join, union. So without that, we, we, I think people shrivel up. That seems a reasonable psychological explanation of the urge to make a sage's teaching into a religion. But religion implies faith, and I ask the monk if it's possible to have faith without God. Oh, well, I have faith without God, so... Uh, uh, no, for sure, of course you can have faith without God. It, it depends how you look at what the universe is, what a human being is. As a Buddhist, I, I, I can't accept that there's a creator God, because it then creates the problem of where the creator God came from. So then you have to keep on going back, back, finding a cause, and there's no original cause. And do Buddhists have faith? Tremendous faith. And God doesn't come into it. Which leaves me where I began, wondering about the many connections in the thought systems of the Buddha, Confucius, and the first Greek philosophers, and why they emerged at the same time. But I did figure out why these faiths without God became religions anyway. People have a need across millennia and across cultures, to elevate the teachings they live by and the sages who gave the teachings to the level of the sacred.